Have you ever met someone who gave so much of their time, energy, or resources, but never seemed to be burnt out, depleted, or lacking in any of these areas? Or maybe you personally experienced spending hours or even days volunteering to help others in need, and rather than coming out of it feeling exhausted and worn out, instead felt invigorated, fulfilled, and uplifted. In this week's episode of Unbreakable Lessons, we will discover the true reason behind this phenomenon. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Unbreakable Lessons. If you're joining us for the first time, my name is Jakob Cohen, and I'm so excited that you've joined us as we embark on another journey this week, as we explore the concept of the kindness ripple effect and discover the true power of one small, simple act of giving. I would like to actually begin this week's episode with a Jewish text, which is not exactly usually what I do when I introduce a topic, but in this week's Torah portion, Parsha's Truma, we are given an insight about the power of kindness, which is so profound so powerful, so deep, so interesting, that I've never seen an idea like it that really teaches us what it means when we give. How giving can give us something back in return that is so meaningful, that is so impactful, that our lives can be changed forever. The Torah portion begins by saying, Vayikhu li truma. And you should give a truma. Truma is a portion, a portion of what we have. And we are giving it to the Kohanim, the priests. We are giving it towards the building of the Mishkan, the sanctuary. And it says next, From every single person. Every single person must give a truma, must give a portion of what they have. From their hearts. In which their heart motivates them, is how we translate it, right? Every person must give whose heart motivates them. Okay. And then a few verses later, there is this, after, the, you know, there's a discussion of the specific materials that are supposed to be given and it's supposed to be used in order to build the Mishkan, the sanctuary. The end of this segment, a few verses later, says, God says to us, Asuli mikdash b'socham. And with all this, with the portion that you give, with these materials, you will make for me a Mishkan, a mikdash, a sanctuary, and I will live within you. And there are three questions that we have on these verses. And these three questions, once we answer them, once we truly understand what's going on here, what this commandment is all about on a deeper level, we will get an insight into the power of kindness and really the concept of the kindness ripple effect. So, first question. Why is the word vayikhu, the language, the word that's used, when God is telling us to give a portion, the word take is the word that's given. Vayikhu comes from the word lakach, which means to take or to receive. Why are we using the word to take or to receive when the focus, of course, is to give? Second question, why is the word libo used? Every person according to their heart. So it should say every person according to what they have. Every person should give, right? This is an obligation. This is a responsibility. This is something we're commanded to do. It's not, oh, if, if you're inspired, if you're motivated to give, then you give. No, we have to give. Everyone has to give a portion. Otherwise, the sanctuary won't be built. We're all in it together. So then why does it say to every person whose heart desires to, whose heart motivates them? Why is this word heart being used when it's specifically a commandment, a responsibility for us to give? And the third and final question is when God says, make for me a mikdash, make for me a sanctuary, and I will live within it. That's what it should say. You're going to create this Mishkan, the sanctuary, and I will live within it. 
Why does it say, I will live within you, Bisocham? The Asuli Mikdash Bishrachanti Bisocham, I will live within you. You're creating the sanctuary. Why is it saying, I will live within you? It should say, I will live within it. It should say, Bisocho, I will live within it, but it's saying, I will live within you. So why is that language being used? Three questions. Let's start with the first. Vayikhu, the word take, receive, is the word that's used and not the word give. Why? We're focusing on giving. If we're focused on giving, God is telling us about the importance of giving. What is he teaching us with the word to take or to receive when really he's commanding us to give? So let me tell you an example. Imagine the following. Imagine there are two friends who are hiking in Alaska. Their names are Ben and Jerry. Ben and Jerry, okay? And Ben and Jerry are hiking through Alaska and they get caught in an ice storm. And as they're caught in this ice storm, they literally can't see three feet in front of them. This, of course, is the moment where they have the inspiration to start their ice cream company. That's a corny joke. Not factual. Please don't tell it to other people. And so they're stuck in this ice storm, Ben and Jerry, and they don't know what to do. They're freezing. They're shivering. They're so cold. Their body temperature is going down, and they, they literally can't breathe. They can't move. They don't know what to do. And so they're sitting there. And there are all different types of rescue vehicles that are circling around the area, looking for people who potentially got caught in this ice storm. And of course, no rescue vehicle has gotten to them yet. So they don't know what to do. Ben turns to Jerry and he sees that Jerry's starting to blank out. His eyes are starting to close. He's starting to lose consciousness. So Ben quickly acts and he starts yelling at him to stay awake. It's not working. So he starts shaking him. He starts hitting him. He starts yelling at him more and more and more. And as he's yelling at him and shaking him and hitting him, he's able to help him remain conscious. Another 15 minutes go by. He's doing this, continuing to do this. Eventually, a rescue vehicle comes, picks them both up, and brings them to the local hospital. So they're in the hospital. Every day that they're in the hospital, Ben is you know, trying to ask the nurses and the doctors how his friend Jerry is doing. And so he says, turns to the nurse and he says, next door, my friend Jerry, who I came in with, how's he doing? How's his recovery process? And the nurse says, don't worry about him. He's doing fine. He's doing fine. You focus on your own recovery. And so another, another day goes by. Second day, he asks again. He asks the nurse. He says, how's my friend Jerry doing in the next door, you know, the hospital room next door to me? How's he doing? And she says, he's doing fine. Don't worry about him. You're in the same condition as him. Don't worry about him. He's doing fine. Focus on your own recovery. Third day goes by. He once again asks the nurse how his friend Jerry's doing. And at this point, the nurse kind of explodes. She can't hold it in anymore. And she says, sir, why do you keep asking about your friend Jerry? You're in the same condition as him. Why are you so worried about his recovery? I said he's doing fine. Focus on your own recovery. You're in the same position as him. The same health risk. The same, you know, condition as, as he came in. So Ben turns to the nurse and he says, I don't mean to boast, but I actually was the one who saved my friend Jerry. And she said, really? How so? And he said, you see, when we were in the ice storm, I was the one who helped him remain conscious. He was losing consciousness. That was a tremendous risk to his health. And I helped him remain conscious until we got to the hospital. So I really saved his life. And the nurse said, and what do you think saved your life? You were helping him remain conscious. What do you think helped you remain conscious? You meaning you remain conscious because you helped him remain conscious. You saved his life 
and therefore saved your own life. In doing so, in trying to keep him awake, you kept yourself awake. In trying to save his life, you saved your own life. This is a concept that we have to apply to life. When we give to other people, we often think that we are the givers and they are the recipients and that's it. And of course, that reality is true. We're giving, we're giving something and they're receiving something. But the opposite is also true. Whenever we give something, we are also receiving. Which is why every single time we give, we feel good. Every single time we do something for someone else, we feel a sense of fulfillment. We feel we've tapped into something meaningful, purposeful. And it goes to one step further. You see, this concept, actually in this Torah portion, of course, we mentioned that the word taking or receiving is the language that's used rather than giving. But in addition to that, there is the word giving that is used over and over again in, the, in, in this Torah portion, many others, where we get to the concept of truma and miser, right? The giving of a portion, the giving of a tithe, and as well as the machzis a shekel, giving a half a shekel when the Jewish people are, you know, it's being used to count the Jewish people. And in many of these cases, the word giving is the word that's used. However, the word giving actually teaches the same lesson as here in this Torah portion with the word taken. How so? The word that's used for giving is the word vinasnu, vav nun taf nun vav. That word is a palindrome, which means it's the same when you write it, it's read the same way forwards as you read it backwards. Just like race car, right? Whether you write it forwards or backwards, it's the exact same word. What's the message? The same lesson. When we give, we end up getting back. Vinasnu, palindrome, it comes right back to us. You give, forwards, backwards, you give, end up getting it right back. So many different cultures call this by different names, right? We have karma and boomerang kindness. In this case, we're calling it the kindness ripple effect, where what we're doing at this moment, this act of giving, is not only giving us something back spiritually and emotionally at this moment, but it often comes back to us even physically. It manifests itself physically, where as a result of our act of kindness, whether directly or indirectly, we end up getting something back. And often, we get back much more than we gave. So we should never feel, according to this concept, we should never feel that we are losing something by giving. By giving, we end up uplifting ourselves at that moment. We become better people because of it. But we also end up getting results. We end up getting things back in return that are much more meaningful and impactful than what we gave. Let me give you an example. A few years ago in Jerusalem, there was a family, the Lipskys, who lived on the first floor of their apartment building, and their balcony faced the street. And they were constantly worried about burglars, thieves, you know, jumping onto their balcony and breaking into their home. So they decided they're going to build a fence. Makes sense. They said, you know, obviously there's a potential risk of people breaking into our apartment through the window on our balcony. We're going to build a fence around our balcony. It'll keep the burglars out. However, the Fragers, who live directly above the Lipskys, they didn't want them to build a fence. They said, if you build a fence, then someone could just jump onto the fence that's around your balcony and climb up onto our balcony and break into our home. So we don't want you to build a fence. And so this created a little bit of an argument, right? This argument ends up turning into a bigger fight. They were yelling at each other. They were constantly fighting. The Lipsky said, we have a right to build a fence. We want to protect our home. The Frager said, well, we don't, it's not fair to us. We don't want people to jump onto your fence and climb onto our balcony. It's not fair. We don't have the money to build our own fence. We don't know what to do. 
we're gonna you're gonna put our family in risk by at risk by building your fence. And the Lipsky says, we don't have enough money to build you a fence, but I'm so sorry, I don't know what to tell you. We wanna build a fence to protect our family. And the argument just continued. In fact, other people in the apartment building actually got involved with this fight. Some people sided with the Lipskys, some people sided with the Fragers, and the arguments continued. Eventually, on the third floor, there's another family, the Bookstein's, right? Remember, you have the Lipskys, the Fragers, and the Bookstein's, right? The Bookstein's, who are on the third floor, they couldn't take the fact that the Lipskys and the Fragers were fighting. They couldn't handle the fact that the rest of the building was now arguing because of it. So they decided to call the Lipskys and the Fragers into their home. And Asher Bookstein, who was the father of the family, a righteous, nice, kind, amazing person, he called both of the families together and he said the following to them. He sat down with them and he said, I can't handle the fact that you guys are fighting. I don't care who's right or who's wrong. I just don't want fighting. I don't want Jews to be fighting with one another. I don't want Jews to be arguing and upset, upset at one another. I can't handle that. So I decided that I'm going to pay for both of you to build your own fence. The Lipsky's on the first floor. I'm going to pay for you to build your fence around your balcony just for it to be equal, to be even, to be fair. I'm going to pay for the Fragers to build a fence around their balcony. And everyone knew Asher Brookstein didn't have a lot of money, but he was willing to sacrifice his own money to give of himself to give his own money in order to make sure that these two families were no longer arguing. We're now going to get along. He says, shalom, peace is all I care about. I don't care about who's right, who's wrong. I just want peace. I want peace between Jews. I want peace in our apartment building. Therefore, I'm gonna build both of you fences. You're both gonna feel protected. That's it. Everyone's gonna get along. They both hug Asher Buxtein and thank him profusely. They felt so grateful for his act of kindness. Several weeks went by. Asher Bookstein paid for both of the fences to be built. Both of the fences were built. Amazing. Everyone was now getting along. Several months later, the Bookstein family from the third floor apartment went out one night and their 17-year-old daughter was watching the rest of the children. And while they were out, a person on the street noticed that through the window of the Bookstein family's apartment, there was a small fire that seemed to be growing in their apartment. And as he looked up and he told people around him about the fire that he saw, the fire was growing rapidly. So him and two other people in the streets, they quickly ran into the apartment building. They ran up both, you know, the first two flights of stairs. They went up to the Bookstein's apartment, their door on the third floor, and they started trying to knock it down and they couldn't. In fact, the door was boiling hot because the fire had centered near the door and they were trying over and over and over again to knock it down. They couldn't. They called the fire department. And as they were waiting for the fire department, it felt like hours. Of course, it was just a matter of minutes, but the fire was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they didn't even know that there were children in their bedrooms in the apartment as this fire was growing and developing through the apartment. And so they had to think fast. They decided, wait a second, there's a fence around the first floor balcony and another fence around the second floor balcony. Why don't we just climb up onto those fences and jump onto the third floor balcony to run into the apartment and save anyone who might be there. And so it's exactly what they did. Him, this man who initially saw the fire and two other men with him, jumped onto the first floor fence, the fence around the first floor balcony. They climbed up. They hoisted themselves onto the second fence, the second fence of the second floor balcony. And they climbed up that fence. They jumped onto the third floor balcony. They ran into the apartment, ran into each of the bedrooms, brought the children out to the balcony, and still another minute or two goes by before the fire department even comes. They're standing there on the balcony. 
Eventually, the fire department comes. They put out the fire. They rescue the children. They bring them to their safety. They turn to the men and said, if you didn't break into that apartment, if you didn't go into each of the bedrooms, bring these children out to safety onto the balcony, they might not be alive anymore. That fire consumed that apartment so quickly. It was probably a matter of 45 to 60 seconds from the time the fire started until it hit the bedrooms. These children would have been so hurt, so damaged, they might not have been able to survive. And it was all thanks to you. Little did these three men know that although of course it was thanks to them, of course they rescued and saved these children, it was mostly thanks to Asher Bookstein, the father of these children. Because of the fact that he built those two fences, the Lipsky's fence, the Frager's fence, those months ago, because he so badly did not want fighting to be going on in his apartment building, in the Jewish people, he built those fences for them, which caused those three men to be able to jump onto those fences, climb up, and save his own children. This is the power of kindness. Kindness doesn't always result in miracles like this. But when miracles like this happen, it is just a window into the power of one small act of giving. Every single time we hear of a story like this, we say, that's not going to happen every single time. But it's God, God's way of showing us that this is possible. This is a potential result of one small act of kindness. Let me give you one more small example. There's a kosher meat factory in Argentina comprised of several buildings. And there's a tall chain link fence that surrounds the entire factory. And the owner, Kamen Rokeach, is the first one into the factory every single morning and is the last one out every single evening. And so every night when he leaves, he locks the fence and he goes over to Domingo, the security guard, who sits in his security booth outside of the factory. And he tells him, everyone has left the factory, you can go home now. So he does this every single evening. One night, he goes over to Domingo to tell him, the factory's locked up, everyone's gone, you can go home. And Domingo says, no. And Common Rokeach says, what do you mean, no? What's wrong? And Domingo says, not everyone has left yet. And Common says, yeah, everyone's gone. I, I looked around the factory and made sure that everyone had left. I you know, turned off all the lights, I locked all the doors, I closed the fence and locked it. Everyone's gone. And Domingo says, no, not true. Rabbi Berkowitz is still inside. You see, Rabbi Berkowitz was the mashkiach of the factory. He was the rabbi who made sure that every, everything that was happening was going according to Jewish law. And he was an incredible person. Everyone knew he was the kindest person in the world. And so Domingo says, Rabbi Berkowitz is still inside. And Kama says, are you sure? I looked around. No one was here. And Domingo says, I'm positive that he's still inside. We have to go look for him. Kama knew that Domingo was a trustworthy person. He's always been able to trust him over these years. So he believes him. He says, okay. Common gets out of his car. Him and Domingo go into the factory to search for Rabbi Berkowitz. They go to the office building. Rabbi Berkowitz isn't there. They go to the truck dock. Rabbi Berkowitz isn't there. They go to the packing house. Not there. Nowhere to be found. They finally get to the last room that they haven't looked in yet. The huge room containing these massive walk-in refrigerator and freezer rooms. After searching through every other walk-in freezer room, they finally get to the last one. They open the door, and to their shock and horror, they see Rabbi Berkowitz lying there on the floor, trying desperately to breathe. He had been locked inside. They quickly grab him, bring him out, cover him in blankets, give him hot drinks, and wait to see if they have to call the ambulance. Is he going to be okay? After about 20 minutes, it's clear that his body temperature is beginning to rise again. He's beginning to become a little bit more conscious. And it looks like he's going to be okay. At that moment, 
Kalman turns to Domingo and says, I don't understand something. How did you know that Rabbi Berkowitz was still inside? I shut off the lights in every room in this factory. I saw no one was here. How did you know that he was still inside the factory? Listen to what Domingo said. Domingo said, I'll tell you exactly how I knew. Every single day, since I started working here 16 years ago, every single day, Rabbi Berkowitz, before he walks into the factory, comes over to my security booth. He says, good morning to me and wishes me a great day. Every evening before he leaves, he asks me how my day was and wishes me a wonderful night. Every day. He doesn't miss a day. He said, you know, there are over 300 workers in this factory and not one other worker besides Rabbi Berkowitz ever says hello to me. Not one other person seems to acknowledge my existence. They just walk by my security booth. But not Rabbi Berkowitz. There are days where I wait for his warm greetings. And tonight, I didn't receive it. I knew it wasn't possible that he left without saying goodbye. Not a single day for the past 16 years has he gone into the factory without saying hello or left without saying goodbye. I knew that he had to still be inside. Rabbi Berkowitz's kindness, his daily simple, small act of kindness, of just saying hello to someone, saying good morning, saying have a great night, all it took that literally saved his own life. His small act of kindness every single day ended up saving his own life. This is the possibility. These are the potential results of every single small act of kindness. Again, does that mean that your life is gonna be saved as a result of every small act of kindness you do? No, but it means that again, this is just a window into the power of every small act of giving. One moment, one smile at a person, one kind word can literally save a life. This is the power of one act of kindness. When we give, we end up getting back. The question that still remains is, are we guaranteed to create this kindness ripple effect with every small act of kindness that we perform? Are there specific acts of kindness, acts of giving, that cause this ripple effect to take place? The answer actually is given to us several words later in the same verse. Remember we started, we said, why is this word libo, a person's heart? Why is that word used when talking about this obligation, this commandment, this responsibility of giving a truma, of giving a portion? Why are we told to give from our hearts, to give if our heart desires, if our heart motivates us? Why is the word heart used when this is something that we must do? What does it have to do with our hearts? And the answer is, if we give, not because we have to, because we're obligated to, not because it's a burden that we just want to get over with, but because we genuinely want to. We want to give from our hearts. We want to channel all of our effort and energy into it. We want to be all in with a complete heart, with our true authentic selves in it because we care about the person we're giving to, because we care about the thing that we're giving. We genuinely want to help. We genuinely care. If that's the case, then we have the highest possibility, the greatest chance of creating this kindness ripple effect. It's all about the effort we put in. It's all about how much we care. Let me explain. Imagine the following. Imagine you're watching a race and the person who comes in first place finished in nine seconds. The person who comes in last place finishes in 30 seconds. Who are you more impressed with? Obviously the person who came in first place. He finished the race in nine seconds. But what if I were to tell you that the person who came in last place that finished in 30 seconds couldn't walk until he was 14 years old. At 14, he got out of his wheelchair and started working on walking with crutches and different devices. And after some time went on that he was able to use these devices to walk, he wanted to learn how to walk independently. That was his dream. And it took him several years to walk independently, working with physical therapists, all different types of exercises. Every single day, he was going to achieve his dream of walking independently. 
and he achieved it. And eventually, he got a new dream. He decided, now that I'm walking independently, I want to one day learn how to run. That's my new dream. And not only do I want to learn how to run, but I want to learn how to one day run so quickly that I can compete in a race. And he worked on it every single day with physical therapists, all different types of exercises, all different types of trainers, every single day, day in, day out for seven years straight until seven years later, he achieves his dream. Not only can he run, but he runs so quickly that he's able to compete in a race. And he does the race that you just saw him lose in 30 seconds. Now, who are you impressed with? Who are you impressed with now? Obviously the person who came in last who finished in 30 seconds because of what he went through, because of the efforts, the amounts that he went through, the struggle, the difficulty, all that he was able to overcome in order to get to where he is today. We know that in life, effort is what counts the most, is what matters most. In Perke Avos, Ethics of Our Fathers, it says, Lefum Tsara Agra. The reward we get in life is based on the effort we put in. The reward is the result of the effort and the struggle. The more we work, the more effort we put in, the more of our hearts we put into it, the more we care, the harder we try. That's how much reward we get. It's not based on who's first. That's not what we're, what we're impressed with. What we're impressed with, with ourselves and with others, is how hard someone worked. As long as we're working as hard as we can, then we're already successful. This same concept that applies to achievement can be applied to giving. When we give with all of our heart, when we give with all of our genuine effort and energy, we've given all that we can. We've done everything that we possibly can for that person. It doesn't matter how much we've given or how little we've given. We've given all that we can. That is what generates the most reward for them and for us. That's what causes the greatest impact possible. When we've done all that we can to help another person, that creates the kindness ripple effect. Giving with a complete heart creates that level of impact. I want to tell you something else that happened in Jerusalem about 10 years ago. A girl walked into a jewelry store and says to the man who worked there, I want to buy a bracelet. The man said, who do you want to buy a bracelet for? And she says, my sister. And he says, okay, great. Why do you want to buy a bracelet for your sister? And she says, you see, I don't have a mother or a father. And my sister is the one who takes care of me. And recently, my sister got engaged. She's going to be married in a few months. And so I want to buy her something special. The man was completely taken aback. And he says, okay, would you like to pick something out? And she says, sure. She looks around through the glass and she points to a specific bracelet. The man says, you have very good taste. That's a beautiful bracelet, but it's also very expensive. Do you have the money to pay for it? And she says, of course, I have everything that I need to pay for this. She takes out a big pink bag, a duffel bag, and she puts it onto the table. She then literally dumps the bag out and outpours hundreds of coins, all different types of coins, small amounts, right? Half shekel coin, one shekel coin, 10 agurot, the equivalent of quarters, nickels, and dimes and pennies. And he says to her, this is perfect. This is the correct amount. And he gives her the bracelet. She leaves. She brings the bracelet to her sister. Her sister is, of course, completely shocked, a little bit horrified. And the sister goes back to the jewelry store. And she says to the man who works at the jewelry store, she says, I'm so sorry for what my sister did earlier today. She took this bracelet from you. The man says, she didn't take it from me. She paid me for it. And the sister said, she paid you for it? This is a very expensive bracelet. 
It's not possible that she paid you for it. My sister has almost no money. And the man says, you couldn't be more wrong. Your sister paid me in full. He said, every single day, people walk into my jewelry store to buy expensive pieces of jewelry and they could all afford it. But when your sister walked in with her bag full of coins that she saved up over the years and with her heart overflowing with love, I consider that full payment. He insists that she keeps the bracelet and wishes her well. This man realized that effort is what counts the most. When we give with a full heart, that is what deserves the most reward. This man was so inspired by this young girl who had been through such difficulty, but who cared so much about giving to another person that he decided to forego any money that he would gain in order to give to this girl and her sister what he felt they deserved. It's important to mention that this should not be the reason we give. This should not be our number one intention while we're giving. But we should also understand that when we give with a complete and full heart, with all of our effort and energy, because we want to, because we genuinely care, then we should expect that whether it's now, emotionally, spiritually, or later on physically, we're going to get something in return. We're going to be receiving. Now, although we explain the concept that giving from our hearts, giving genuinely with all of our effort and energy, ends up enabling us to receive something even more powerful than we gave, we never truly understood why it is that we feel uplifted, that we feel inspired when we do give from the heart. Why do we feel fulfilled when we give? Why do we feel like we're not losing anything, we're gaining more than we gave? Why is it? The answer could be found in the third question that we asked in the beginning of this Torah portion. God says, you make me a sanctuary and I will live within you. God doesn't say, I will live within it. He says, I will live within you. Why? Because God isn't referring to the physical sanctuary alone. He's not referring just to the Mishkan that we're building. He's saying on a deeper level, when you give of yourselves, when you give genuinely from your heart, you make room in your heart for me to live within you. Belvavi Mishkan Evne. As the Jewish saying goes, I will make my heart into a sanctuary. God says, when you give of yourself, when you give with all of your effort and energy, because you care, because you want to give, because you genuinely care about the person you're giving to, and you genuinely want to give whatever it is that you're giving, your time, your energy and effort, or your resources. When you give, and you give because you want to, not because it's a responsibility, not because it's an obligation, because you genuinely care. You're giving from your heart. When you do, you make room in your heart for me to live within you. That is why when we give, we experience something uplifting. We experience something inspirational. That's why anytime we spend hours or days volunteering somewhere, volunteering our time, giving of our resources to someone in need, we don't feel like we're lacking. We don't feel like we're missing something. We feel fulfilled. And the reason is because anything that we gave from our hearts, we made more room for God to live within us. When he does, when we make our heart into a sanctuary for God to live within us, anything is possible. We become inspired. We become uplifted. And more than that is we allow this magnet to exist inside of us to attract all different types of miracles, all different types of blessings to come our way. That is the power of one simple, small act of kindness from the heart. Thank you so much again for joining us for this episode. If you found this meaningful or know anyone else you feel will connect with the messages discussed here, please feel free to share with them. You can connect with me anytime, unbreakablelessonspodcast at gmail.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. Have an unbelievable day.